Hello and welcome. Legally Brief presents the Child Athlete Abuse Podcast. I'm your host, Judy Saunders. I'm a lawyer, mother, and survivor. I work with competitive athletes and their families who are confronting abusive coaches. This podcast is for parents and athletes who are fed up, dealing with fear, and searching for answers. On today's show, I'm having a discussion with Christina Sanford. Christina is an author, licensed psychotherapist, and founder of the Living Waters Institute. Christina and I are going to discuss issues of sexual abuse. Now, it's not necessarily abuse that occurs in the gym or on the field. In particular, Christina and I will look at allegations of sexual abuse within the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Some of the things that you'll take away from my discussion with Christina are knowing the difference between being nice and being kind, how to identify the grooming process used in sexual abuse, why you should seek counseling outside of a religious order or faith and instead go to a licensed professional, and the importance of reporting sexual abuse to law enforcement. Remember, you can find past episodes on my website, jsaunderslawfirm.com, and don't forget to hit the subscribe button and to share this episode. I hope you enjoy my discussion with Christina. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Legally Brief podcast. Today, I want to put a disclaimer on this episode that if you have small children or you have anyone who may be triggered by a conversation that discusses sexual abuse, trauma, sexual trauma, or physical abuse, that maybe you should give pause or consideration and maybe ask that individual to leave or think about it before you listen any further. I have the absolute pleasure today to be speaking with Christina Sanford. Christina is joining us to really give some good guidance to really explore the topic of trauma, sexual abuse, physical abuse that occurs and how we can move through. It's usually not my nature to give long lead-in or intros, but I do think that it's worth noting that Christina is the founder and CEO of the Living Water Institute. It's a women's leadership developmental firm near Phoenix, Arizona. She is also a keynote speaker. She's a licensed psychotherapist, and she has over two decades in dealing with the behavioral sciences. So that's what I'm going to say. And Christine, of course, is going to talk more about herself and what she does. But I always like to kind of open each show with a little bit of an icebreaker to get the listeners to get to know someone that I've spoken with and really am fond of. And that's why I asked him to come on the show. So I open always, Christina, I like to not just say, well, what did you want to be when you grew up? Or what do you do now? I kind of say, we look at on the show, cultural influences and authority figures. So what did culture and family or even any authority figures in your life, what did they label you or say you would become when you grew up? I think one of the things that I heard a lot was teacher, because my mother is a teacher. I also heard people say that I would, as I got older, that I would be a social worker. I did end up becoming a social worker sort of against my will. (laughs) And so that whole journey has been very interesting over the last 20 years because it actually has morphed back into more of who I really am. And although 
I am a proponent of justice and I am an activist at heart, like social workers are, a lot of my other gifts are also in play right now at this time in my career that have nothing to do necessarily with social work. Look at that. So that's always interesting because I do, I think it's um, your origin story. It's the institutions, it's the authority figures that can really have an impact on your life, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to define your life or any instance or incident. We're going to focus today about trauma and that trauma can take the form of abuse, be it of a sexual, physical, or emotional nature. Trauma can be hidden within the body. Um, It can be hidden in the mind. So I want us to talk about that. That's some of the things that we're going to discuss. But I wanted to frame our conversation and start out. So Christina, I have been just riveted nonstop with a book I've been reading called Cassandra Speaks. The book is written by Elizabeth Lesser. And I'm telling you, I am a, everyone knows that listens to this, knows that one thing, I'm a podcast geek. I love podcasts, but my second love is Audible, anything Audible on the Audible books, any the series, the classes. So I was listening to this book and the book is one that I really think every woman and everyone that knows a woman needs to read. And it is based on the direct correlation between what has happened through the generations historically, and you find the imprint in the arts, you find it in the biblical writers, you find it in religion, you find it in culture. What has happened to cause for women to lose their voices, but more importantly, for the feminine, for the female form, why has it been removed out of culture? Why has it been removed? And the imbalancement that has happened to our world, the direct impact that that not having that female voice, not having that impact in our world, and how it's really been a detriment to all genders, to all people. It's not only women, but it's to men also. So I wanted to use that book, Cassandra Speaks, and I'm going to link to that in the show notes to really frame our conversation. And I'll use this segue. So in the book, Miss Lesser speaks to the story of Eve, Adam and Eve. She speaks to the story of Pandora's box and also Cassandra and some Greek mythology and talks about, well, what if women had written the story? Or what if they had even been consulted or had an impact on the story? So Framing that, using that as kind of our anchor for this discussion, can you talk a little bit about where you've seen in your practice why women lose their voices and how we're all impacted? We could just start with that. Absolutely. You know, when we're born, we come out with a voice. We come out whole. And that wholeness is inclusive of a voice, whether we are male or female, but for women girls, females in particular, as our voices develop and emerge, right around the age of about 10 or 11, there is an attempt made by our socialization to subvert that voice. And I can speak to my own experience, but the studies do show that in general, that around that age, girls are beginning to be socialized to provide what a woman should or a wife should provide in relationship to a man. And that cannot include intellectual prowess. 
It cannot include questioning or challenging the status quo. It has to include us coming alongside a man and making sure that that man's mission is accomplished. Those skills and those ideals are, they begin to be taught around that age and implemented around that age because that's the prepubescent age. This is the age when our parents start to see, oh, she's becoming a young woman. We need to, let's make sure we teach her. I mean, she needs to know that she is to assist the man and she is the help me, which is not untrue. However, to say that a girl or a female or a woman is the help me while negating the reality that she also is the head of her own life, it damages the existence of a woman and it subverts her path. It obstructs her path. So that word that you use damages in the book, Cassandra Speaks, the author takes us back to the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. And if I can, I hope I'm characterizing this correctly. What she talks about is at that point that we know, and for any listener that's not familiar with the story, it's the creation story, Adam and Eve are in the garden. Eve is out exploring. She comes upon the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm digging back in my <laughs> biblical studies here. So yes. correct me, correct me if I, am I, am I on point so far? You're on point. <laughs> and the Adam and Eve, ha- they have been warned not to touch the tree. And as the writer of Genesis goes on to speak, Eve is tempted, takes a bite of the fruit, and then offers some to Adam. So now in the book, Cassandra Speaks, the writer gives the interesting perspective that Eve is, what if the story were to show that she was being curious and her curiosity was punished? And as a result of that, every writer, every religious institution since then, they have punished women. We have been our curiosity, our ability to make decisions for ourselves. We've been cursed. So when you say damaged in what you were just talking about, the whole idea that you don't have authority over yourself, you don't have authority over your mind and your body, talk about how that could then lead to you being taken advantage of. What could that damage that happens first in the mind lead to an external trauma? Oh, that's such a good question. During those formative years that I talked about, around 10, 11, prepubescent age for girls, again, we're taught that we are to align ourselves with someone else's mission and someone else's purpose and to forget our own. And if we are giving our will over to someone else's, for to someone else, then how can we then have a path to our own destiny, to our own calling, to our own purpose? That path being obstructed is damaging to our inner self, our self-worth, our sense of independence and autonomy. We begin to believe that somehow our job is to ensure that we are pleasing and appeasing the needs of others only and not our own. And so that's where the damage comes in because we are operating at that point from a perspective of my life is predicated on otherness, someone's ideas of what I should do. And so I'm not really living my own life. And so how does that play into maybe someone coming and beginning to try to groom me? Um, My job is to appease others. My job is to meet other people's needs. 
Well, he said that what we were doing was okay because he was so lonely. And so I'm meeting his need and it feels uncomfortable, but I'm going to do it anyway. So there we go. I think then that voice, and I know that you're the voice of, and giving this an identity, a name, a voice of a survivor who has gone through some type of sexual, physical, or emotional trauma. I know that it could happen. We know that it can happen before that pre-pubescent age, before 11, 12. And I wonder if we can shift the conversation a little bit, because also in the book, Cassandra Speaks, they talk about the creation story. They talk about some of the other religious institutions. Can we speak now specifically to where we find that trauma, where we find that loss of the female voice, if we're looking at the church? And if we're looking at, if we can even drill down a little bit further, if we're looking at the faith known as the Seventh-day Adventist faith, can you talk a little bit about, and you can even introduce what exactly the Seventh-day Adventist church is, some of the tenets, and talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. So uh, the Seventh-day Adventist Church started in the mid-1800s, and it started as a movement of Christians who wanted to learn more about prophecy and to observe the Seventh-day Sabbath, which is the Jewish Sabbath. It's a Christian Sabbath, but people know it as the Jewish Sabbath. And it became a movement that kind of morphed into an organized religion. It was not initially a religion or a denomination. It was a a movement of Christians. And so some of the tenets of Seventh-day Adventism with regard to women in the faith, in the Adventist faith, women are taught to be extremely modest. Women are taught from a young age to ensure that they do not tempt men Women are taught to ensure that they are not overstepping men in their in the way that they communicate, in the way that they engage with the world, specifically with leadership in the church. And for a very long time, up until recently, women were taught that they were not to be leaders, specifically the ultimate leader or pastor in the church, because it was against what the Bible or how they interpreted the Bible And so women really served a very subservient role in the Seventh-day Adventist church over time. That is slowly changing, but those fundamental tenets are difficult to unearth. And it's there, people are working tirelessly inside the church to try to dismantle some of these erroneous beliefs and the system of really patriarchy in the global church. That's within the church. So we are hitting on, and I see patterns. I love patterns, patterns in behavior, because I think that once you identify a pattern, you see a system, and it's only when you become aware of something that's broken, can you even think about fixing it. So I think that what we've gone through right now, we see that the loss of the female authority, the loss of the female voice and form happens first when you are groomed or you're, it's normalized as a child. So you're yes. taught that, you're taught that it be it in the home, you're taught that in the different school or settings that you're in. But then it also sounds like we're seeing that when you go out now into your religion. So if you're going to church, that's also what's expected of you. We see it in you know many places in the Bible and other churches. And then now I want to take us to, so then we have a layer. So now we have a foundation. First, you're taught it. First, you're groomed to believe that. Then you um, see it 
outside of your immediate family in the different cultures and institutions? And then what happens then when you have someone who encounters the trauma of sexual and psychological abuse, which it would seem to me would be kind of that third layer in the system that really then may completely silence a woman. What happens? And if you can, I know that we spoke before the show in particular about a young lady and a Facebook live video. So this video is out there. I'll link to it in the notes so viewers can see it themselves. And I found it to be very poignant about this woman and her story. So I won't talk much more. Can you just set it up for the listeners and how it is that this individual could have now lost their voice for a third time or third layer in the system? Absolutely. So there was a young lady who posted a Facebook live broadcast a couple of months ago. Her name is Danielle Simmons. She's in her mid-30s and she reported in this sort of tell-all video, two-part video that starting in 2009, in 2009, she had lost both of her parents in a tragic car accident simultaneously. She was 23 years old, the oldest in a sibship of four, I believe. And she was brought home to really bury her parents alone. Uh, She was referred by a friend of hers to a pastor who could help her with estate planning. And that pastor did help her with the estate planning and the funeral arrangements for her parents. However, in that process, they became close friends. He began during their meetings. This is even after the funeral. He would try to hold her hand or kissing her and saying, oh, it's not a big deal. He began to groom her. Okay. Um, again, she was 23 years old, grown up in the Seventh-day Adventist church and was socialized in the typical way that a person in the Seventh-day Adventist church would be in the traditional ideals. So she's very naive. She was still a virgin at 23. And she really had no knowledge about how men operated, no knowledge of relationships, anything like that. And so she began to be groomed by this pastor. And eventually the pastor, after petting and fondling and hand-holding and kissing, her confusion with things was quelled by his dance of certainty. Oh, this is fine. This is okay. I mean, I'm so lonely and you're here for me, just like I was here for you to help you bury your parents. So, And she discusses this on her video. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, she talks about this in the video. And so after several years, she tried to leave a couple of times. But throughout the course of that time, again, they're very good friends. He introduces her to another pastor. And this pastor happens to be single at the time, divorced, single. And so that pastor develops a sexual relationship with her. And in some ways, she's sort of being passed around. This happens two or three times throughout the course of this relationship with the first pastor. Okay. Okay. All throughout this time, she is believing that somehow this is right. That even though it feels wrong, that he's telling me that it's okay. And so I guess I should just believe him. He's a pastor. He's in leadership. He is lonely. He has problems with his wife. I can help him. Okay. He's the authority figure in this scenario. The authority figure. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so when he passes her on to the other pastor, she trusts him. 
And she thinks, oh, well, he wants me to be friends with this pastor too. It's We're just all going to be really good friends. Again, you know, she was very inexperienced and also just needing someone to be there for her. Her father was dead, had died tragically. And so that space was empty in her life. And so this pastor comes in as a pseudo filler for the father who had protected her up to that point in her life. And so anyway... That was a sexual relationship. The second relationship became a sexual relationship. And then there was a third pastor that she was introduced to. And I believe that she reported that that pastor raped her. And so all of this traumatization around spiritual and religious themes is what has damaged and she's getting therapy and and trying to get help. Danielle Simmons in a myriad ways. So here, I think that that example speaks directly. And you just now gave us the third layer, however you want to think of an analogy, the third cog in this system. You had the normalizing of this, these thoughts. You don't have a voice as a child. You trust authority figures, distrust yourself. She may have saw it in the imaging, whether it's imaging in artwork, in the Bible, in stories, in Hollywood movies. All of this is being fed to you, and then you you internalize that. Then you go outside of the home, outside of your bubble, so to speak, and you also get a second layer of this through the form of a religious institution or educational institution. And then right when you should be using your voice, it's gone, yes. and that's when the trauma comes in. Can you talk to a little bit about staying on the, the topic of Danielle and this happening in this spiritual church setting. So how do you think this spiritual, this abuse, and we'll call it a spiritual abuse mm-hmm. on top of also being a sexual and an emotional trauma and assault and a crime. And if yes. she's saying that there was rape, how do yes. you think this spiritual abuse directly affects women? One of the ways that I believe that it affects us most because of how we're wired as women. We're very multifaceted in our thinking and we're just simply wired toward more spiritual matters. We easily connect to the spiritual. And really that's just the way we were wired. The way we think is different from men, which is another conversation that we can have about how the world is now trying to morph men and women together and see no difference, but there is a difference. But in terms of spiritual abuse, the very depths of a woman's soul, her thinking, her thought life, her feelings, her emotions, her will are geared toward spirituality, are geared toward understanding that there's something greater than her, that it doesn't begin begin and end with her. Mm -hmm. And part of that is how we're socialized, but it's also the way we're naturally wired. And so when We are spiritually abused when we experience maltreatment that occurs as a result of a spiritual leader's manipulation and control that hits us at a very deep and profound level. And it proliferates throughout our lives in many different relationships. It changes the way we believe in spirituality. It changes what we believe about God. It changes how we perceive our social environment. It changes the way we interact with our current or our future partner. For Danielle, she was 23 and unmarried. So when and if she does enter into an intimate relationship with someone, 
the remnants of these experiences, starting with her virginity being lost in the context of an abusive situation, all of that will be carried with her into her next intimate relationship. Even if she gets therapy and good therapy, she's still carrying it. It may not be keeping her bound spiritually and socially, but she's carrying it with her. And that is the damage that is being done. That deep level of spiritual damage that damages your perception of who you are, who God is, and who you are in his eyes and in the context of the world in which you live. So let's then, we're speaking of this public video, Danielle Simmons, and we're taking a little bit of liberty, but it is out there for all to see. But Mm -hmm. if we can now, so we're identifying a problem. And I think that it's useful because sometimes you don't even know what's happening to you. And if you've been led or you've been given ideas that you are to behave a certain way that directly speak against what you feel inside and know to be true, you do become susceptible to abuse, to trauma, and you don't even know that it happened. So how can we help our listeners? How can we help women identify when they're in a situation and something's happening? What are some of the signs that, that you've seen in your practice that women could raise the fag. Maybe they're not ready to raise their voice. Maybe they're not ready to speak out, but at least they can do some things to protect themselves and say something's going wrong here. What are some of the signs that they should be aware of? When their boundaries are crossed. So for many of us and for humans in general, we have a natural boundary field that surrounds us. We feel uncomfortable when a person gets so close to us. Everybody's field is different. And depending on your experiences, your field of distance from people could be greater or more enclosed than someone else's. But there is a feeling, an experience, a physical experience that we have when our boundary, our physical boundary is being crossed. And if we begin to make ourselves aware of what's happening in our bodies and become more attuned to our bodies in general, then we can help to stave off boundary violations. It doesn't mean that we will never be victimized. I don't want to blame the victim. Oh, if you're victimized, that means you didn't listen to your body. No, but we're talking about ways to prevent and to circumvent what could become an abusive situation. When grooming happens, it starts with small boundary violations. For Danielle, it was the pastor, the first pastor, holding her hand while he visited her. She felt violated and she mentioned it to him. Oh, well, you're holding my hand. What's going on? Oh, it's because I see you as a daughter. You're like a daughter to me as he caresses her hand. Mm, My father doesn't caress my hand like that unless I'm in a hospital bed or something. You know, that that's not, we don't do that. She felt it. She did speak up, but because of where she was in relationship to this man, he had already helped her. She was beholden to him. She was indebted to him. She went with what he said. And so listening to our bodies and like you said, Judy, raising the flag, even in our own minds, like, "Uh, I won't be going over there again, or I won't be going out to dinner with him again, whether it's that or whether we speak up like Danielle did and said, oh, why are you, this is odd. Why are you holding my hand? Before you go on to the next point, 
I just have to interject and say, when you have that awareness or you start to question, not even awareness, you start to question, hey, this is weird, like Danielle did, what would you recommend that we then do? Should we at that point, and I'm assuming that it would take practice because we're all under the spell of, and I go back again to Cassandra Speaks, we're under the spell. If you're in the female form that you need to tamper down, be quiet, follow the status quo, what would you recommend though, if you start to get that something's wrong? What, What should we do? We have to speak up in the moment. We have to speak up. And that is While it's a simple solution, it's not an easy solution because our entire lives are riddled with experiences and instances in which we've been forced to be silent. Mm -hmm. And so the speaking up, the saying, oh, what you're doing is making me feel comfortable. Could you please stop? A perpetrator is going to take that as his cue to back up. He may try again, but he knows that, oh, I might not have her like I thought I did. Dang. And he'll try to move on to the next one. Okay. But we have to speak up in the moment. And doing that requires practice. Sometimes you have to practice setting these clear boundaries. One of the things with setting boundaries is if that person continues to do what you're asking them not to do, you say to them, you continuing to do that is I'm going to call your wife and tell her that you were rubbing on my hand and my shoulders when we met for you to help me with my funeral arrangements for Mm -hmm. my, I'm going to call her and tell her that. Right. And, and that if she doesn't practice. believe me, guess what? I'm going to call the regional secretary of the church and I'm going to tell them and I'm going to tell until someone believes me. Okay. And so we have to become bold, emboldened with our knowledge that what we're experiencing is real. Believe yourself first. Believe, believe what your body first. is telling you first. And that will give you the power and the unction to speak up against boundary violations from authority figures. Okay. All right. So I'm sorry to interject. So then go on. What other signs? Other signs that person will start treating you in a way that is more special than other people. Oh, well, I'm going to take you to dinner tonight. No one else is getting to go. It's just going to be the two of us. And I just want to talk to you about the church plans. Oh, well, why just me? Because I really value and respect everything that you say. I mean, we should go to this French restaurant. I mean, I'm just going to treat you. Which I can say in a bigger context is a form of isolation. Starting to isolate you. Starting to set that up. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. That person, you may raise a question about what's happening in the relationship. Like, this doesn't seem right. I mean, but you're married and yeah, but I mean, my marriage is falling apart. I'm just so lonely. And you just take away the loneliness. Everything you say to me, it just feeds my spirit. Everything you do, it just is everything to me. I just need you in my life. And that's one of the signs that they point us back to how we are valuable to them, how we are meeting their need. Right. And that's the clincher because, again, we've been socialized to meet other people's needs. And they use that in order to get us to continue on the path that they want us to be on. And Christina, I see that pattern also, not only in the context that we're talking about today within the Seventh-day Adventist church or within any church, this can happen within any religion, but I see that pattern of making the survivor feel as if they are to blame if they should break it off. It's starting that tool, that very powerful weapon that perpetrators use, which is blame. 
if yes. you leave, if you go away, if you quit, this will happen to me. So I see that also. What else? Yes. What other what what other signs should people be aware of? I would look for, let's see, signs that that you're in this abusive relationship and that you're being exploited and that mm-hmm. you're being traumatized. I mean, so for example, I think it's very unique in these situations where a uh, religious authority figure where they may use their position, like any abusive authority figure, use their position to kind of target that guilt, maybe even twist or contort Bible stories or yes, yes, very much. And you're and then you're totally confused about that. Yes, this isn't Danielle's story, I don't believe. But in my practice over the last 20 years, I've met with several women who have had spiritual abuse, have experienced spiritual abuse by a pastor. And several of them have said that the pastors use scripture in order to justify the actions that they were taking. If the pastor was forcing at the time the adolescent girl or young woman to perform sex acts in his pastoral study, then he would, before that would happen, he would open the word of God, open the Bible and say, think of others more highly than yourself. I am in need right now. And you need to think of me higher than yourself. You don't feel like doing this, but I need this. Wow. Beware of that. Yes. And so they start placing their needs above yours, but also using the Bible to do so, to substantiate their abuse. Wow. That is, that's definitely, that is powerful. And I think that's unique to the religious settings, unique to authority figures in that position. So let's work under the, the set of facts that you realize that this trauma has happened. You realize that you've been violated. No matter how long it takes you to disclose or come to that realization, we are happy and brave that you've done it. The first inclination I know in so many cases that I deal with is that the survivor and their families or the people that support them, they go back to the very institution that that perpetrator was a part of and they begin to disclose this happened. Because I know that there's the shame that you have because we've also been normalized to believe that if a sexual act has happened to us, well, maybe we asked for it. Maybe we've done something. So there's the shame. So you don't really want to quote unquote, make it public. So you want to go stay within, let's just take care of this silently, quietly. I've seen it in my practice where young ladies and young men, boys and girls, they'll report to the sports athletic body, the national governing body that the perpetrator is also a part of. Now let's analogize that and let's use that in the religious setting. So you're traumatized by an authority figure in the church. Where do you go? What have you seen people go and where do you think they should go? Talk to us about that. I have seen people time and time again, go to leadership in the church, maybe a trusted elder or a trusted church leader that say it's the pastor who's doing the abuse. They go to someone other than the pastor, but on the pastoral team. Someone who's inside of their sort of esoteric bubble of that particular denomination. That is not where you want to go. But usually that is where people go because they don't know where else to go. Mm-hmm. You have to choose someone who is outside of your bubble. And this is just initially to share with them what's going on. But even along with that, you must go to law enforcement. This is someone has committed a crime and 
I need to protect myself and other people who are being abused by this same person, likely. Exactly. And so that requires legal intervention. And we can't go to someone inside this organization to help protect us from the organization. Right. <laughs> it just, it's not intuitive to do that. Right. But right. we're not being intuitive when we've been traumatized. We're irrational. We're, we feel helpless. We feel desperate. And we just need to tell someone what happened. Right. Right. I've seen that time and time again, be it with you're going to the church, you're going to a national governing body, or if it happened on a university, you know, Mm -hmm. in a school setting, you're going then to someone within the school. And I counsel individuals, I try to counsel and let, look, you are doing an incredibly brave thing. This is what you can expect. And you don't expect to get maybe support or handholding from that institution. They may be going to stun you. They may, you may suffer retaliation. I've seen recently parents who are disclosing on the behalf of their children it within the sports community, they are being threatened with lawsuits of defamation, you know, for speaking that. Those are all tools of retaliation, all tools of fear and ways to keep you silent. Do not give up your voice again and the power to go to law enforcement. So I think that's also something that I'd like listeners to take away to get counseling, go outside of these institutions. Before we start to wrap up, I I wanted you to speak a little bit about that first layer or that first cog in our system where the female form, where women start to lose our voices in the home setting and what we're taught. What are your thoughts on how we parent? You know, we have a lot of listeners who are parents and, you know, we want our girls, we want our boys to be nice, to be liked. But what can we really start to rethink in that parenting narrative about be nice? Because I think that, quote unquote, be nice may lead a child to deaden that instinct. Yes. To just say yes to an authority figure. So now when they go outside of the home, whether it's a coach, whether it's a pastor, whomever it is that's doing something inappropriate, you have that thought, mommy and daddy said, be nice, be quiet, don't push Mm -hmm. out, don't push back. What do you have to say to parents along that line in the way that we parent that narrative? I want to say we need to teach our children the difference between being nice and being kind. Nice is a very nondescript term that refers to someone obliging others at any cost. Right. That is not what we need to be teaching our children to do is be nice. We do need to be teaching them to be kind. And in being kind, We are not just being kind to others, but being kind to ourselves and honoring our own internal barometer for safety. That means if Uncle Joe comes up and Uncle Joe is a little bit creepy to our child from our child's perspective, and he may be having some problems with sexual impropriety, pedophilia, we don't know. But Uncle Joe makes the child feel uncomfortable. It is okay when Uncle Joe comes around that when he, when everyone's hugging and the child doesn't want to hug Uncle Joe, that you say, oh, she doesn't have to hug you. It's okay. Or he doesn't, it's fine. He doesn't feel like hugging you right now. Go on and play, Jimmy. So teaching, I think that's powerful. Powerful. Say it again. So teach our children to do what? Teach our children to be kind. And in being kind, we are being kind to others and being kind to ourselves by honoring our own safety. Right. 
and speaking up and saying no when we want and need to say no. But that takes us teaching our children to feel. When we're perpetually telling our children what they should feel, that subverts the power within them to be able to connect with what they are feeling. We can't keep doing that. That is why so many children continue to be abused on a long-term basis because they're taught this way. They're taught, yes, hug Uncle Joe. Oh, Uncle Joe asked you to go in the room with him. You should obey. Right. No, I shouldn't obey. I don't feel safe. And I'm saying no. And I'm going to go tell my mommy or someone else who could do something about it. Whoever that is, mommy, daddy, grandma, someone. Be, Be kind. Don't teach our kids to be nice. No because it's a detriment to to the voice. And I know that we've spent most of the show using casting the perpetrator in a male pronoun, but we both know that perpetrators can be in a female form and in a male yes. form and in anything between. So yes, I, I, do, I do want to highlight that. I mean, we are just touching the surface. I know that we're going to have to come back because I know from our, my prior conversations with you, you have a wealth of knowledge on how to help victims through trauma, help us before we even get to that point, identify trauma. Can you talk a little bit now about your practice, who you help, who you speak to? Because I know that there's going to be some listener out there that's going to be directly helped by what you do. Absolutely. So while I am a licensed psychotherapist, Right now, I'm not taking any new patients because I'm working on building my speaking, training, and teaching platform. And part of what I teach on my training platform, I teach organizations how to develop trauma-informed churches, schools, and other environments so that things like this, what we're seeing, this pervasive problem with abuse from authority figures, that there's some padding around that. And it there is a system set up to help prevent these things from happening. And that's what a trauma-informed environment helps us to do. And so I do teach organizations that I do work with women on a group basis who are in leadership to deal with issues of their past so that they can function more effectively as leaders. Trauma is a big part of that. What we don't realize, I think, is that in many of our work relationships and in our professional relationships, we carry over our family of origin dynamics into the work dynamic. If we were the youngest child in our family, when we come into the work environment, there's something about that dynamic that puts us back in a place where people are caring for us. And so I teach women how to deal with that, how to resolve the issues of their past so that they can become more effective, more powerful leaders in their professional lives. And do some of your clientele, because I know that we, there are women out here that have suffered sexual trauma. So do some of the women that you speak to, do you work directly with women who are moving through and trying to understand sexual trauma, psychological trauma? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Also, I have a weekly live stream on Instagram right now called Destiny Talk. And during that 30 minutes or so on Destiny Talk, we talk about matters of the heart, relationship issues, trauma specifically, how to move forward in your purpose, even when you have all these sort of things in the way that you haven't dealt with. And so that comes on on Sunday nights on Instagram. I air that that broadcast comes on weekly. And then I'm also writing my first book. Awesome. 
And that also addresses trauma in some ways. It's kind of a comprehensive guide for women to help them to operate more effectively in their purpose and in their calling. And I also speak to many different sorts of audiences across the nation and and around the world about issues related to trauma, issues related to leadership, spirituality, and self-care. So Christina Speaks, huh? That is going to be the title of the book, just like Cassandra Speaks. (laughs) Because, I mean, I know that this world and the vision that I have for my practice, the vision that I have that I would like to think I move in the world is to invoke more balance. I think that's the female form, the removal of it, the suppression of it, the distrust of it. Mm-hmm. Characterizing, you know, women as being chatty or petty or whatever mischaracterizations we throw on the female form is harming us all. It's harming men mm-hmm. and women. I know that I have to have you back. I wanted us to talk about some of the uh, stats that we see, the statistics that we know are happening, not only on the universe or the world as a whole, mm-hmm. but specifically focusing on college campuses and talking about the. The, the sex abuse that's occurring and how oh, women yes. are, you know, were forced into silence, you, or even sex abuse that that's reported and it's not taken seriously. We know that's been a systemic problem. So I want to talk yes, about that with you coming up. You were talking about just a moment ago, the trauma informed your work that you're doing trauma informed institutions. It reminded me of something that I heard you say, and I'm, I'm going to try to quote it, <laughs> but I want you to clean it up. It was one you had said, and it was so powerful for me. So when you suffer, when girls, when women, when we suffer, and boys, I'm including all genders and everything in between, when you suffer a trauma, it's not that just the trauma that is impactful, but also the response of those around you. Could, do you do yes. to, say, yes. say that? Say I know that exactly what you're talking okay. I love that. It's, say that and explain that as, as we yes. end this episode. I think that's very important for everyone to know. People look at trauma and they say, oh, that's the most horrible thing that could ever happen to someone. In my 20 years, 20 going on 22 years of practice with working with women specifically to recover from sexual trauma, it is not the act or acts of sexual trauma that occurred or happened to them that is the most impactful. Yes, we process that. Yes, we look at the nuances of it. The most impactful thing And the most important thing when we're looking at healing is the response of the caregivers who were placed at the gate to protect that child, that woman, that person. It is their response that's the greatest impact on that person's development and their healing from the point that the trauma stops all the way through the rest of their lives. And so it's very important when we're looking at organizations that we understand that if we're leading an organization or if we're part of an organization that we first listen to the victim, we believe the victim, we report the whatever is being alleged to the proper legal authorities, not in the church because they're not law, the law mm. in the community. And then we provide a support network around that person to help them to feel safe and protected from retaliation, from scorn, from ridicule, we set that up for them because that is the 
biggest indicator of ultimate healing and wholeness throughout that person's life from that point forward. That, what you just said, I am definitely going to put in the show notes because I think that that is so important. Christina, what you just set up is the world and the vision that we are aiming for, that we want, that we're shooting for. When Mm -hmm. women have their voice, that's how, because we're never going to get rid of trauma. We're never going to get rid of sex abuse, but that's how the system should work versus, and I'll just really quick, what I see, you have the trauma, the Mm -hmm. individual does not disclose because they know that it's going to be a horrible thing. If they do, they deal with shame. And then when they finally do get up the courage to either fully disclose or partially disclose, they're met with disbelief. They're met with scorn. They're met with blame. And then yes. they go to directly to the institution where that authority figure is also a part of. And there's mm-hmm. no reporting. There's no support. And then you get isolation and yes. you get retaliation. So that's how it is now. And what we want, everyone, is we want the system. We want the process that Christina just described. So Absolutely. just end this off by telling really quick where we can find you, where we can connect where organizations can sign up for your trainings. Absolutely. You can find me at christinasanfordspeaks.com. It's spelled with a C, so it's C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-A, christinasanfordspeaks.com. On social media, I am at Christina Sanford Speaks. If you want to reach me by phone, yes. I can reach by phone, and that number is 623-226-8287, right awesome. here in Phoenix. Awesome. And I'm going to put everything how to reach you in our show notes. Thank you so much for appearing today. Thank you so much for sharing with the audience. And thank you for having me, Judy. I'm going to have you back. Definitely going to have you back. Take care. You too. All information and content in this podcast is provided for entertainment purposes only. Nothing in this podcast shall constitute legal advice and shall not create an attorney-client relationship. This information is general and may not be applicable to your particular circumstances. You should review your particular circumstances with an attorney. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast is hereby expressly disclaimed.